This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth is an author, essayist, short story writer, and novelist. In 2006, she wrote her landmark memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, which spent 199 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Her latest novel, The Signature of All Things, is a sprawling tale of 19th century botanical exploration. O Magazine named it the novel of a lifetime. Elizabeth Gilbert is a featured presenter at Sounds True's 2014 Wake Up Festival. She'll be speaking on the topic of big magic, thoughts on creative living. The Wake Up Festival takes place August 20th through the 24th in Estes Park, Colorado. You can go to www.wakeupfestival.com for more information. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Elizabeth and I spoke about creativity as a joyful and pleasurable pursuit versus the myth of the tortured artist. We talked about how ideas can be like animated beings with whom we choose and are chosen to collaborate. We also talked about what Elizabeth has trust in, and yes, what is her current edge. Here's my conversation with Liz Gilbert. Liz, I wanted to begin by talking with you about fear, because I know this is a topic that you've spoken about and written about. And I noticed in preparing to interview you, I noticed I felt my stomach turning over several times and something that you could certainly call either fear or maybe excitement. And that was really where I wanted to start, which is how in your experience do you distinguish between fear and excitement? Wow, that's such a great question. Um, And you don't have to be (laughs) afraid to talk to me, but I'm so touched that you're excited. Um, They're sometimes hard to distinguish, right? They have the same physical characteristics at times. You get a little shaky, um, your stomach flips. Um, I know in my own life that it tends to be fear is a sort of propellant, right? Um, And so is excitement. The difference is I think that fear tends to make me want to run in the opposite direction and excitement makes me want to run toward the thing. <laughs> um, so, so I think it's, it's more of a, of a navigational question. Do you, do you want to get away from this or are you trying to get closer to it? Um, and, and that's probably the way that, that I distinguish it. I think creatively speaking, I've learned to make friends with fear um, over the years in ways that I haven't quite yet been able to in, in other emotional realms of my life, but I've been able to recognize that creativity and fear 
are sort of conjoined twins. And I think that sometimes we murder our creativity because we really want to kill our fear. So we don't want to live a life that's scary. And so we don't live a creative life. And um, in order to get rid of that fear, we end up killing all the benefits um, that come with facing it. So, so these days when I'm embarking on a creative project and I feel really scared, I just speak to the fear and, um, and tell it that it's very welcome to join me on this journey because I know it's going to anyway. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I know that that's what its job is, to be afraid, and it does that really well, and I respect it, and it has a right to be there, but it's not going to be allowed to make any of the decisions. I think what's so important about this is that from the outside, I could imagine someone seeing you as, oh, you know, Liz Gilbert, she seems so fearless. And what you're saying is actually something quite different. It's not that you're without fear. It's that you've made a relationship to it and you move forward anyway. True. It's also the case, I think, that there's no such thing as anybody who's universally fearless. Um, That's not a quality that I think exists in anybody except maybe a full-blown sociopath. There are things that I do that um, that other people might think are brave that for me just actually don't really require that much courage. Um, it's really easy for me to put myself forward in the world in a certain way. Um, I'm comfortable traveling alone. I'm comfortable putting my neck out creatively. Um, there are other aspects of my life where I'm I'm often paralyzed by fear, Um, things that might be easier for other people, um, a certain kind of emotional confrontation with a a loved one, for instance, that somebody else might just be able to sit down and do um, can send me into a panic, you know, um, that shuts me down for for months, you know. So, so, So we all have aspects of our lives where it's easy for us to be brave in aspects of our lives where it's almost impossible to be brave, you know. And, um, like, I know Navy SEALs who can't do public speaking, you know, um, who would just fall apart and start crying if they had to go up on stage, but who have other kinds of courage that I could not imagine approaching. So so I don't even think it's it's really fair to, to label this or that person as being brave. It sort of depends on the circumstances and on the, the you know, the strange um, peculiarities of the self. Now, I notice as we approach our conversation here and as we've entered it, that a lot of the questions I want to ask you are kind of the questions you would ask to a wise counselor, not necessarily a novelist or many writers I wouldn't think of asking the kinds of questions I want to ask you. I wonder how that feels to you. People like me, you know, I run a teaching company, spiritual teaching company. Those are the kinds of things I want to talk to you about, not necessarily the craft of writing. How does that feel to be in that position? Well, that's the kind of stuff I like to talk about. <laughs> so, you know, part of me is like, let's roll, you know, let's go. That's the stuff I've been talking about forever. I mean, writing is my my craft and my profession, but the real central journey of my life, and I think this probably shows, and it's in my it's in the way that I live, which is probably why you you bring it to my attention, um, has been, you know, trying to figure out how to live well, um, trying to figure out how to not succumb to darkness, trying to figure out how to be a better friend to people, trying to figure out how to find destiny and live it um, in a way that feels bold and important. You know, that's kind of what I'm about. Writing is, um, I don't want to diminish writing by saying it's just what I do, but writing is my vocation. Um, But I think I have a higher vocation that I respond to, which is living. <laughs> and, um, and, and, I've, and I've failed at it so many times in, in so many ways and then tried to come back from it that I think I've, um, you know, like all of us after a certain age, acquired a little bit of information about that along the way. Um, I think unless you're really not paying attention, 
probably all of us are, are getting wiser as we get older. You've you got to really wake up early in the morning and be committed to not looking around and noticing anything to get dumber as you get older. <laughs> you know, so so at this point, you know, we've all just gathered what we can. But um, I'm, I'm honored and, and delighted that you would come to me with those questions. I would probably come to you with them as well um, if we were to meet on a bus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so in terms of that higher vocation, that vocation, if you will, that even comes before writing, the vocation of living, what would you say is your sort of stated purpose or intent or motivation as a human, if you will? Is there something like that that guides your life? Um, Not to waste it. That's what comes to mind right away. I think that's something that I've always been keenly and sometimes uncomfortably aware of, is the short duration of time that we have here. And the preciousness of it. I I knew that from a really early age. I knew it before I had any way of processing it um, that didn't scare me, right? You know, like around the age of eight or nine, I just became crushingly aware of mortality. And it wasn't because anybody in particular had died. Um, You know, there wasn't a a tragedy or a devastation in my family. I just noticed it. Um, I'm getting older. My sister's getting older. Someday my parents are going to die. This is all temporary oh my God, you know, um, and it filled me with such a panic that I spent a year having panic attacks about it. And I think that's probably what what prompted me to become a seeker, um, was trying to figure out how to quell that panic and how to turn that knowledge from something that was terrifying into something that was inspiring. Um, you know, what are, what are we then to do? <laughs> um, what are we to do with our time here? And, and with that sense of not wanting to waste time, part of that gets translated into wanting to be as creative and generative as I can possibly be. And part of it gets translated into, frankly, just wanting to get rid of pathologies that, that I've been carrying around my whole life that I don't want to go to my grave with, you know, that I just think it would be really unfortunate um, to be on this whole journey and leave with the same stuff you came in with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'd like to unload some of that. So, um, you know, if you want to look at it karmically so that I don't have to do it again next time, but even if you don't happen to believe in, in that particular philosophy, so that I don't have to keep doing it again and again this time. Um, I think that's probably been my, my central focus. And when you find yourself in some moments or an experience and think, gosh, I could be wasting my time right now. What are those kinds of moments like? Are those activities or those pathologies when you think, oh, I'm wasting my time right now. This is not what I want to be doing. Oh, well, mostly um, I'm pretty, you know, I don't really waste my time in terms of, you know, how I use my hours for, for productivity in the work because I, I sort of love my work. And, and if anything, I'm always trying to make more and more and more time for it. It's, it's really the place where I get stuck is in um, relationships that have turned sour and my thinking about them, my my shame about them, my inability to fix them, you know, this, this feeling that I've had my entire life that I should be able to get along with everybody. <laughs> and if I can't, it's my fault and I've got to solve it. And then I try to solve it and it makes it worse. And then I spend you know, six weeks not sleeping because I'm thinking about something that I said to someone that I shouldn't have said and wondering how I got myself into this. And and all of this is, um, you know, I'm not talking about things in my deep past. I'm talking about things like last month, Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and, and that's where, you know, that's where I really can put myself into quite a severe amount of trauma, you know, um, and, and where I can really disappoint myself um, because I feel like, I've fallen short of, of the person that I want to be or um, haven't behaved in a way that I think is honorable or should have seen something coming that I didn't see coming. Um, and, and I can beat myself up about that. I had a, a really 
helpful conversation recently with a friend of mine who I really admire, who I think is quite spiritually involved. And I, I just said to her, what do you do with your shame? Where do you put it? <laughs> you know, what do you, what do you do with it? And she said, you know, Liz, you realize that, that the world doesn't want your shame, right? That, that, that's got nothing to offer the world, that you're here to offer yourself to the world and to make the world a better place. And, and your shame is of no use to anybody, you know, <laughs> and it's not of any use to you either. And if you want to be a creative and generative person, you kind of just have to let it go. Um, and, and that seems like sort of spirituality 101, but it struck me as a, as a great and important revelation. <laughs> How does prayer work into your life now at this point in your life? It's, oh gosh, it's so integrated into me that it, I don't really have a formal, I don't really have a formal praying practice. I just feel like I'm almost always in prayer. Um, And I try sometimes to formalize it. I do have a formal, formal is not even the right word, I should just say a a regular um, meditation practice. And I try to always close it with a prayer. Um, But I'm a little bit with Annie Lamott on this, that, that, you know, the only two prayers that have ever existed or, or um, help me, help me, help me. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and it, um, it does, and, and uh, it does seem to come down to that, you know, um, whatever prayer I'm closing off my meditation with at the end of the day tends to be one of those. I was following your discussion on shame by asking about prayer because I was wondering in those difficult moments, if there's ever a sense of reaching out or some way of, the prayer of surrender or something like that that might be helpful in those moments of... Jeez, it would yeah. be if I could yeah. remember to do it. Yeah. Um, I think what happens in those moments is I get so I get so embroidered in my own story that I forget to look up and ask for assistance from wiser presences. <laughs> um, you know, I think what happens is that I'm I'm burdened for better or for worse, I'm burdened with this idea that I'm that I'm in charge of my destiny and, and so when I blow it or think that I've blown it, I then think that I'm burdened with the responsibility of fixing it and remedying it. And um and all of that is of course about, you know, um rescinding the myth of control, which is um which is probably one of the central uh, faces of my particular journey and, and probably a lot of other people's as well. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think if I could remember at those moments to um, accept my own humanity and ask for divine release, that would probably be better for me. And, and those who are, as Rumi says, burdened, burdened with the responsibility of loving me. <laughs> listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge.
Now, at the Wake Up Festival, and again, thank you for coming to Sounds True's Wake Up Festival in August of this year, you'll be talking on a subject called Big Magic. And I wanted to hear a little bit about your choice to use this word magic and what you mean by that. Well, I'll be talking about my own creative path and um, and my own creative philosophies, which I have essentially reduced down to those two words, um, to, to big magic. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be done in Western civilization right now around the question of creativity and artistry. We have really toxically imbibed a lot of pretty bad thinking around this subject, mostly inherited from 19th century German romantics. Um, We are still, as creative people, a society that is pretty much defined by the model set by 19th century German romantics, which is to say that if uh, your art is not destroying you and everyone around you, then you are not doing it right. And it is incredible how deeply that's ingrained in our thinking about creativity. Um, and it's amazing for me to watch how hard people cling to that um, and and almost sometimes even seek it as some sort of um, a badge of validation that they are serious artists um, because they are willing to kind of be martyrs um, for their art. And, and what I preach, <laughs> and it is kind of a, a preaching because I do think it's sort of the true believing, what I preach is is a commitment to art that has nothing to do with suffering and martyrdom and has everything to do with, um, with joy and magic and, um, and pleasure, which is um, in, in our still very Calvinistic society, I think something that we have a lot of trouble believing we are entitled to. Um, but we are entitled to it, and we're entitled to it in our, in our personal lives, and we're entitled to it in our work lives as well. And there are ways to access it. And, and I think for me, the most moving way to access it is to think of my creative life as a collaboration between uh, one human's efforts, and that would be me, and the divine mystery of inspiration, and that would be the big question mark, um, which I've encountered many times in my life and which I work with. I spend my life, my work days in collaboration with that mystery. And um, I can't think of a, a, a more beautiful way to spend my life um, and sort of talking to it, asking questions of it, um, cooperating with it, sitting down to work every day with the with the commitment that I will not wrestle it um, or or fight it or abuse myself against it, but I will ask it every day what it wants from me and um, and try to work with it as, as respectfully and reverently as I can. And it leads to a really joyful kind of creation. Now, a couple of questions here. One about the big mystery, the big question mark. I'm curious to know a little bit more about what your worldview is, if you will, about this mystery or big question mark, meaning some people could say when they sit down to write and they open and they hear a voice that it's a spirit guide, or someone could say it's the Mm -hmm. muse, or, you know, they're connecting with the collective unconscious, and you're Mm -hmm. saying it's the mystery or the question mark, but I'm curious to know more what you actually think is collaborating with you. (laughs) If I knew, I wouldn't call it the mystery. (laughs) And I capitalize mystery when I say that, even in my own head, um, out of reverence, because I feel like it's it's a piece of divinity. Um, look, we're the only, to our knowledge, we are the only um, species on this planet that communicates with the mystery at that level, that gets artistic inspiration at that level. Um, why? 
you know, I don't know. I just know that it's a really lucky incarnation to be able to have any communication with it at all. And all those other names that you listed, the inspiration, the muse, the collective unconscious, those are all fine as well. Those are, those are human's efforts to put words to something that's kind of indescribable. Um, And, and, you know, there's a, there's a difference here. I should, I should clarify between, you know, mental illness and schizophrenia and hearing, you know, hearing voices that don't exist and something that I think is a more common and sane human experience, um, which is inspiration, um, which is uh, being drawn to something for reasons that you can't explain, feeling the shivers up the back of your neck and the, um, you know, the, the goosebumps on your arms when you hear an idea that makes you want to follow it, feeling as though something is laying a path for you, that coincidences are happening, that information is, is being put in front of you, that, um, that if you follow that path, almost like a divine scavenger hunt, um, you will be brought to something really wonderful, something that comes from you, but also came to you um, at the same time. And, and, and the sense that I have is that we live in a world that's constantly being enswirled and encircled with ideas, and that ideas are these non-embodied spirits that want nothing more than to be made manifest. And the only way they can be made manifest is in collaboration with a human being's labor. And so they come to us, they come to us all the time and ask us, you know, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? They're looking for somebody to bring them into being. And it's not just artistic ideas, it's scientific ideas, political ideas, um, you know, all the ideas of mankind begin as a sort of disembodied spirit. Um, And then they find a person and they sort of tap you on the shoulder or knock you on the head, whatever they have to do to get your attention. And then you choose to or not to enter into collaboration with them, into contract with them. And that's a really honorable and really holy decision to make, you know, um, to announce to an idea that you will work with it. And I think that the wrong thinking that so many people have about creativity is that you then become the slave to the muse or the other even wronger. And I think a, a very sort of male and European idea is that then you have to kill it. You know, you have to conquer it. So we have these weird ideas about dominance and submission around the questions of creativity that either, you know, it's dominating you or you're dominating it. And in reality, it's neither. It's a partnership. Um, it, it, that seems very clear to me, or it should be. And it's healthiest manifestation. It's a partnership. Um, and so when I get blocked and when I get troubled or I feel like I've lost my way in a book and I don't know my way around it, I've learned that instead of getting enraged or self-pitying, instead of fighting against it, I remind myself that the idea has absolutely nothing to gain by tormenting me. It's not trying to torment me. It has. It, it won't be made manifest if it's tormenting me. All it's trying is to come into being. It's trying as hard as it can. It's trying to get my attention. I'm not quite listening carefully enough. The answer is there if I'm patient, if I keep up my side of the bargain, which is to show up for work every day with an open heart, we'll find our way through it together. It's um, it's like any other relationship, you know. Um, you you can't dominate or be dominated in a healthy relationship. So so that's what I that's what I believe and that's what I live and um and so that's what I like to talk about because I feel like I know it from such an intimate place. As you talk about ideas, it's almost as if they're animated beings. They're beings with life. I, I don't think most people think about ideas like that. But what else are they? <laughs> um, because they come to us. I mean, even the most rational, um, pragmatic kind of quotidian thinker who had an idea would say, an idea came to me, you know? Um, 
it, it, we we all know that feeling of of something coming to us externally. It's like a visitation of some sort, um, and and it seems to have a consciousness. It seems to have a desire, um, and and I've also seen that it has a will, where an idea will come to you, and if you don't if you don't enter into contract with it and if you don't do your part of it, which is to work really, really, really hard, because I, I certainly don't believe in people sitting around and waiting for the muse. I think the muse rewards people who are at their desk at six o'clock every morning. <laughs> you know, that's certainly what I found. I mean, that's your, that's your job um, is, is to honor it by, by putting the full intent of your labor behind it. But if you don't, I've seen the idea balance, you know, um, move from you to another person. We've, we've all had that experience where we had an idea and we didn't take it up on it. And a few years later, we see that somebody else made it manifest. Um, it's not, you can't blame the idea. It only has one impulse and that is to be born. Um, and it will be born through whoever it can find who will birth it. And, um, and when ideas come to me, I, I, I try to keep them with me <laughs> by, um, by talking to them and letting them know you came, you came to the right place. We're going to do this together. Stay with me. We're going to get through this. And um, and it's a it's a really beautiful and very holy encounter. Has an inspiration or an idea ever come to you, and you've thought, you know, this one is asking too much, too much change, too much risk. This one, no. It's not that it feels like too much risk. It's that sometimes I feel like it knocked on the wrong door. Okay. And I'll just say to it, like, I'm really super honored that you knocked on my door, but actually that you should go talk to Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or you should go talk to Barbara Kingsolver. Um, you know, I would love, I would love to read this book that you've come to me with, but I know that I'm not the person to write it. And I think the, um, I think that's a knowledge that you can only get from experience, right? I think in your youth, you sort of cast about trying everything. Um, and, and ideas probably attack young people more because we're susceptible and we're open. And I think as you get older, you get more discriminating about knowing what your capacity is. Um, and so sometimes what does happen to me is that I'll have two rival ideas vying for my attention. And, um, and, and then I just speak to them very firmly and just say, um, you know, I'm only going to be able to do one of you at a time. And so the two of you are going to have to work out which one it's going to be. Um, and the other one is going to have to back off. And I'll just wait until one of them just makes it demands more, you know, makes itself more insistent and steps forward. And, um, and then I'll, and then I'll work on it and I'll say to the other one, I'm, I'm, I'm with your sibling now. <laughs> you know, there's a sort of parental thing to it too. Like we're, you know, one at a time. Uh, and otherwise you can get, you know, bogged down and trying to do 27 things at once. And let's say someone who's listening says, well, you know, lucky Liz, she gets lots of good ideas. She gets to choose which ones to keep and which ones to send on. But I'm not getting knocked on my door with tons of great ideas. How do I open to receive more of these possible flying around possibilities? Well, I would have to ask how hard you're looking for them. You know, um, are you letting them know that you're really available? There's a... um, you have to be very careful not to, I mean, this is sort of true of all, of all good things in life. Um, you know, there's a passivity that we can fall into where we're just sort of like, well, nothing good is happening to me. <laughs> um, lucky you, all this great stuff is happening to you. Nothing good is happening to me. What are you, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you looking for? What are you asking for? And, and I think sometimes too, people get confused because they're looking for passion, right? Because we keep being told that we should be living passionate lives. And I'm guilty of this as well, because I, I get excited by passion. Um, but I, but I think sometimes that can be daunting to people where they just feel like, um, 
you know, to have somebody keep telling them, follow your passion, when they don't even really know if they have one, is is, is sort of like having somebody brag about being multi-orgasmic. <laughs> You're like, oh, great, but, you know, that's never happened to me. You know, I, I think passion is the sort of big burning tower of flame in the desert. You'll you'll know it when you feel it, if that should ever happen to you. It's sort of like a big love story. But what I try to encourage people to do is to sort of forget about passion and focus instead on leading a life that's based in curiosity, because curiosity is so much easier to access than passion. Um, you know, you may not know if you have a, a burning life's passion, but you're probably curious about some stuff if you're awake at all, right? Like there's something in the world that kind of interests you, that a little bit makes you want to turn your head a quarter of an inch, that sort of catches your ear, that sort of catches your eye, that's where that's where the inspiration and the ideas are sort of hiding like fairies off in the corner. And so what I tell people is, you know, don't worry about finding your passion. Just look around today and ask yourself if there's absolutely anything you can find in the world that you feel even like 1% curious about, and then follow it. Like, make the effort to turn your head more than a quarter of an inch, see what it is, examine it, and then find the next thing and the next thing. And that trail of pursuing your curiosity very loyally with a kind of discipline, um, knowing that your curiosity will eventually take you to your destiny, I think that's where you find your passion. Um, Eventually, it will lead you there. Now, when we started talking about big magic, you said that you were on a campaign, if you will, I think you used the word preaching, about how artistry doesn't have to be connected with suffering and pain, etc. And yet, Eat, Pray, Love was a book, your most popular book, that did come out of a painful struggle that you were going through post-divorce, etc. So what do you make of that, that your most popular work to date did come out of pain? It wasn't written in pain. Um, I think what I'm talking about when I talk about the creative process is more about the process itself and less about the subject. I, I don't mean that, that every subject that we should write about should be um, butterflies and flowers. You know, life is um, is difficult and and we struggle and processing that struggle hurts and articulating that struggle is important. So I'm not really so much concerned about the subject matter of what people choose to 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 create in their art. I'm concerned about the way they engage with the actual creative process. So I went through a lot of pain during my divorce, during my depression, um, and, and through that pain I got the inspiration to go on this journey and write this book. When it came time to write the book, I wasn't fighting with the book. Um, does that make sense? Um, I was writing about things that had happened to me that were painful, but I wasn't... I wasn't in war against my creative self. I mean, the, the best example I can give of this is that um, I, I, I recently finished writing my new novel, and I really, really, really enjoyed working on it, even though it's there's some really dark stuff in that book. But I enjoyed the process of, of writing the book. And I said to a friend of mine who's also a novelist, I've never had more pleasure in my life than I had crafting this book for four years of my life. And he said, I would never publish a book that I enjoyed writing. And and I said, why? And he said, I wouldn't trust that it was any good. That's what I'm fighting against, right? This idea that there's this distrust of pleasure, a distrust of love. Like, um, I mean, I just found that so heartbreaking. I thought, so the only thing you trust is your suffering process. Um, this is somebody who really bangs his head against his writing. And I just thought, my God, you're so addicted to this to this idea of being the serious struggling artist that it wouldn't even occur to you to write something that you loved writing, which means 
that you're denying us the product of love um, when you when you write your books and what you're giving us is just the product of pain. That clarification is helpful. It leads me to this question I wanted to ask you about your own threshold for fabulosity, if you will, or goodness. And I was thinking here, Eat, Pray, Love, such a successful book. You're in what appears to be a deep and meaningful marriage relationship. Your threshold for success, you're going on an eight-city tour with Oprah this fall, that I'm wondering if you hit at any point in time some type of nourishment barrier, if you will. Like, can I really Mm. experience this much fabulosity? How do you do it? Does it challenge (laughs) you in some way? I like the idea of the No, it's, I I completely understand what you mean. And I think there's two things that that come to mind to answer that. One is that I, I, there was a period around 2008, 2009, Eat, Pray, Love came out in 2006 and it went, it, it went sterile in 2007, 2008. And by 2009, um, I had reached a point where, where I sort of physically and emotionally could no longer go out in public and be that person for everybody um, because I I couldn't replenish my spirit as much as I was giving out. Um, so I took a break and, and I stayed home for almost a year and I didn't even write. I just gardened. Um, so I think I needed to get back kind of into the soil in a very, like I had to get my hands dirty. I had to be growing things that had nothing to do with books and words. It was really restorative. And, um, and at the end of that, I was able to write a new book and sort of go back into the world again um, in a different way. And I'm more careful now about sort of just managing how much of myself I put out there and making sure that I'm refilling that well um, in the ways that, that do restore me. Um, so, so I haven't had an experience like that again. That was a pretty, I don't think I ever will because that was kind of like ground zero <laughs> of the whole thing. Um, but, but I'll tell you how I ended up processing the whole Eat, Pray, Love, Fabulosity thing. Um, I realized pretty early on that I wasn't going to be able to. Um, I just, it was too big. It was just too off the charts. Um, it was way, I mean, nobody would ever have expected that. I would have never expected it. Um, they made a movie with Julia Robertson. All this stuff is just like, it's so, it just got so huge. And so I just thought, you know what? I'm not even going to try to process it. I think I'll just watch it. Like it's a kind of amazing parade that's going on just outside my house. Um, all day long and all night long, <laughs> but I'm not going to try to join that parade um, because I think I'll just get swallowed up by it. So the sense that I had during the whole thing was I was in my house doing laundry, washing dishes, and looking out the window every once in a while at this parade that was still going by. And I was like, oh my God, that parade is still going by. That is amazing. And then I would go back to my tasks. Um, so I just kind of didn't even, that's still how I feel about it. <laughs> Um, I, I spend most of my life kind of in my own tasks and, and, and my own pace. And then every once in a while I look up and I'm like, whoa, that carnival is still there. And then I go back to myself, if that makes sense. It does. It does seem, though, that you must have a large capacity for pleasure, for success, for financial success, for all of that, that something in your being can be that expansive to allow that. That's a, that's a, a good point. I heard um, that the writer Juno Diaz, um, who wrote Drown and the, the um, Wonder, Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, who's a tremendous writer, he had a 10-year 
almost 10-year dry spell after his first book that was so beautifully received and so beloved. Um, And he said later in an interview, there was nothing in my life that had prepared me for being loved as much as I was loved after I wrote this book, and it just made me shut down. Um, And it broke my heart to hear that. I thought it was a really honest and searching um, and sad commentary, and he had to do some probably pretty serious spiritual and psychological work to be restored from the love overload, you know, which seems like something that wouldn't harm somebody. But, but of course, we see instances of that happening in people's lives all the time. Um, I think I'm blessed enough to sort of feel the opposite that, you know, everything in my life prepared me for that. Um, I've had a very nice life. I've been, um, I mean, not, not everything has worked out, but, but I've known love my whole life, you know, um, and, and I felt, you know, whatever problems or issues um, that I've had with my family members, I've generally just felt like I had been welcomed to this world by by my parents, that um, they were not perfect, but they certainly, they really liked me. <laughs> um, they liked having me around. I was not an intruder into their life. I think that, that sort of fundamental sense um, in childhood that I was allowed to be here and I was supposed to be here and, I, and they were happy that I was here. Um, is is where you find your footing, I think, um, in the world. And so so I think that made it easier for me to accept good fortune. I know it seems so strange to say that you have to learn how to prepare to accept good fortune, but, um, you know, it, there is a sort of absolute value on the scale of, of human emotion. You know, we live our lives sort of in the middle the middle of our lives, but but huge failures cast us off into the disappointing darkness of, of of shame. But huge success can blind us too by throwing us too far in the other direction. But I, I just think I um, I was lucky enough to to have had enough love in my life that it it didn't poison me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also think I was lucky enough that um, that I that it happened at the right time. You know, Eat, Pray, Love became a, a giant hit when I was almost forty, not when I was twenty two. Um, so I didn't have Miley Cyrus syndrome, you know, um, I, I already had been through enough of life to sort of know by that point who I was and more importantly, who I wasn't. It happened when I was in my good, solid, supportive marriage, not when I was in my youthful, irresponsible marriage. It happened, um, when I'd already been through years of therapy, when I'd already been on my spiritual journey. So when people say to me, it must be so crazy, everything that happened after Eat, Pray, Love, I always think, no, all the crazy was before Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> you know, um, the good part was after. Mm-hmm. Okay, Liz, I just have two final questions for you. Sure. The first one is to live in this big magic way with a collaboration with the mystery. It seems like you need to have a lot of trust, or someone could even say faith. Mm. And I'm curious to know what you have trust in. I have trust in um I have trust in the fact that I do not believe we would have been formed or evolved with this capacity for creativity if it's not something that we're supposed to be doing and allowed to be doing. Um I've been I've traveled a lot and I've been to other cultures where artists are not isolated in the way that they are in the West, you know, um, where, where creativity does not become this strange, twisted, bent, broken house that you live in far away from the rest of society. Instead, it's something that's really integrated into everybody's lives, you know. Um, everybody sings, everybody dances, everybody paints. Some people do it better, but 
you know, it's not like you're sort of singled out at an early age and shunted away, which is, I think, what happens um, a lot of times in the West. If you have a talent, you're you're plucked out, you know, um, or you or you remove yourself um, and and you become a kind of capital S special person. I don't, you know, there's a level at which, as much as I love and revere creativity. I can be playful with it because I sometimes think that we've come to think that it's much more important than it is. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry to say that. I don't want to mean that in a diminishing way. I just, the the best line I ever heard about this was when I was a journalist and I did an interview with the singer Tom Waits. And he said, you know, artists, we take it so seriously and we get so freaked out about it. And we think that like what we're doing is so deadly important, but really as a songwriter, the only thing I do is make jewelry for the inside of people's minds. That's it. You know, um, and when you reduce it to that and think that as an artist and a creator, all you're really doing is making pretty jewelry for the inside of people's brains. Somehow it just takes that um, the sort of grandiosity out of it. And you just think, this is what humans do. We make beautiful things, right? Um, we've, we've made them forever. And, and I'm lucky that I get to be part of that long, beautiful tradition. Um, and I don't want to soil that long, beautiful tradition by going into some sort of narcissistic tailspin where I think that I or my work or my suffering is the most important thing in the world when really we're just jewelry makers um, and, and we're allowed to do this. Uh, you have you have every right in the world to make a beautiful thing or to try. Um, and, and nothing has ever brought me more satisfaction than that. So I sort of trust that that we're allowed to, that we're entitled to, and that we don't need to get permission from anybody to do it. Um, it's it's ingrained in our humanity to be makers. So go make. And my final question, this interview program is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what people's current edges in terms of their own inner evolution, sort of your own sense when you look at your life and your path, the edge that you're on right now. Oh, wow. Um, For me, it's interpersonal. It's always interpersonal. Um, I think I'm sort of moving into this new, um, hopefully, moving into this new period of my life where I'll be better at not setting up scenarios in relationships that are inevitably going to turn into resentment and disappointment and um, and a severing of the friendship. Um, I, I'm a really intense person, and I've generally created really intense relationships <laughs> my whole life. Um, and and sometimes those are really satisfying, and sometimes they can become a little bit crushing over time. So I think that, that I'm in in a weird way, my edge right now is sort of backing off from that edge, you know, um, and and learning how to be a little less codependent, a little less enabling. Um, you know, a little less over-involved in, in the lives of the people that I love and, and trusting. I mean, going back to the question of trust, trusting to sort of sometimes just let the story play itself out without me feeling like I have to be in charge of the story at all times. Um, I think that that will be a great source of um, peace in times to come for, for both me and, and people in my life. I hope. <laughs> I've been speaking with Elizabeth Gilbert. Liz, thank you so much for the conversation and for coming to Sounds True's 2014 Wake Up Festival. Thank you. I'm really happy. It was fun talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to the event. 
Liz will be speaking about big magic, thoughts on creative living, and the Wake Up Festival takes place August 20th to the 24th in Estes Park, Colorado, www.wakeupfestival.com for more information. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.